This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Well, good morning again. My name is Ryan Paulson. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new with us, uh, we want to welcome you and say it's a joy to have you with us. We hope you find a home here at South. Once again, to all the fathers, happy Father's Day. On Mother's Day, I preached on repentance. And on Father's Day, I'm going to preach on our first record of a Christian martyr. And so my aim is to please. (laughs) So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 6. It's where we're going to start this morning. After my wife Kelly and I got married, um, we lived in Durango for a few months and shortly thereafter moved to Portland where I started um, an almost decade-long seminary journey. I was at a school that had a specific program for studying the Bible and theology. It was a one-year program that was designed to be transferred to other schools afterwards. And this group of people journeyed through this course together. And we grew to really love each other deeply. After that year was over, we had a retreat. And it's humbling as somebody who who speaks uh, weekly that I can remember none of the messages that I heard on that retreat. Uh, I can, literally none of them. But I can remember a night that we shared together as a group. Instead of speaking uh, one of those evenings, a professor of mine gathered us into this room, all 30 of us or so, put the chairs in this sort of long circle, had a communion table in the middle, candles on it, and he invited us to do something that was fairly foreign to us. He invited us to retell stories from the Gospels in first-person narrative. To to retell the stories that we'd studied, the propositional objective knowledge that we'd learned and had had really immersed ourselves in for the last nine months, he invited us to go and to put ourselves in the story and to retell the story from the gospels that God would place on our heart. And for three hours, we sat in the circle and we told stories as though we were there. We, we laughed, we cried, we celebrated the communion table together. And in doing so, God started to drill into my heart and into my soul a key truth that I, that I, that I know is, is, is absolutely true for every single person that walks the face of the globe. And that, that truth is this, there's great power in story. There's a reason that I remember the story that I told and the stories that I heard, that those things stuck into my heart, because isn't it true that story has a way of doing that? And one of the things that, that our modern age has sort of edged out, I think, to its detriment, is that story lacks the same kind of truth that propositional objective knowledge does. We can say that, but we all know it's not true because we go see a movie that we relate to that tells a redemptive story and something in our heart starts to soar. We were made for story. And in many ways, stories shape our lives. I love the way that Daniel Taylor puts it when he says this. He says, ethics are more formed by the stories with which we surround ourselves than by just the rules that are drilled into us. 
Tell us what stories you value and we have a good start on knowing who you are and how you will act in the world. See, stories are far more than just narratives that we tell. They provide a context for the life that we live. I think you could think of it like this, that the propositional truth that we know and believe and are convinced of form the landscape for our life. But in many ways, story is the soundtrack that plays as we walk that landscape. It's that background, heart and soul beating music that plays in the background often. We sometimes don't even know it, but all of us have our feet grounded in some story and that story shapes the way that we live and move and breathe. Some of us have a tape playing in our head of when we were a little kid and our mom or dad told us in no uncertain terms, I will love you if or when. And that story plays. Some of us have heard you'll never amount to anything and that story plays and it drives us and the fear of failure consumes us. The author, Andrew Del Banco, he wrote a book called The Real American Dream. And in it, he unpacks the stories that we've latched onto as the American people over the few centuries that we've existed. He says there's really three primary stories that the American people have adopted. The first, you can read it on our dollar bill, was a story under God. And it was the narrative that we latched onto. Under God. God was in charge. It was our assumed framework. The second story that started somewhere in the 19th century, these are obviously gray areas as to when this transition takes place, but it was a story of nationalism, a story where we were about being American. You can see this reflected in the way that we fought wars and the way that we defended our country and our people. And somewhere along the way, I think you could probably pin it to the 60s or somewhere in there, the story changed again. And instead of being about under God and instead of being about our nation and national patriotic pride, the story became, became a story of self. So instead of being about America or about God, we've become about us. And I think in many ways, that's the story that sort of plays in the background of our life. Well, regardless of what story you're latched onto, may I just simply point out this morning that you have a story that compels your soul, that drives some of the decisions you make, and has power in your life. Now, what I want to do this morning is to ask some questions to maybe have you reimagine what story that is and maybe better said what story God designed us to live. Because today we're going to look at, as I said earlier, the story, the account of what we consider the first Christian martyr. His name is Stephen. And as Stephen is bombarded from every side, quite literally, by people and by rocks, What comes out of him is story. What comes out of him is history. What comes out of him in a time of trial is this overwhelming realization that he's part of something far greater than just his own individualistic salvation, but that he is part of a story that God has been telling since the beginning of history and will tell throughout all of eternity. 
And it's this story that gives Stephen great wisdom and great power to step into and to engage the world around him. So you'll say it like this this morning. It's that standing firm in the story of God frees us to stand firm through life's trials, through situations that feel hopeless when the world presses in around us. It's this story that serves as our foundation. It's a story that serves as our grounding, as our hope, as our strength. For the early followers of Jesus who were committed to living in the way of Jesus and and both pointing out and ushering in the kingdom that he was bringing, this story was the backbone and the foundation upon which they stood. It gives Peter, or sorry, Stephen strength to engage a world that was coming at him. I wonder if maybe you need that this morning too. I wonder if maybe the story that you're playing in your head that you've latched onto, I wonder if it has the ability to sustain when life gets real and life gets hard and when it presses in. Let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to start there to give a little context for the main chunk of our message, which is in chapter 7. If you read through the verses that we were going to be looking at this morning in your bulletin, you're probably wishing that you brought a snack. Well, luckily, we handed out beef jerky, and that's exactly why. It's because we're, it's a good chunk of scripture. It's my goal to frame it for us in a way that would allow it to really sit on our hearts and souls in a way that I think God intends for it too. Starting in verse 8, chapter 6, it says, And Stephen, who, quick time out, we were introduced to last week, um, was this great man of God. Sorry, can you, great man of God who was chosen as one of the early servants of the church. He was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and those who from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom, the spirit by which he was speaking. Notice the description of the early followers of Jesus that Dr. Luke gives us in the book of Acts. Grace. Power, wisdom, spirit. These are the ways they describe Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit by which he was speaking, and they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council. Now, if you've been with us over the study of the book of Acts, this is fairly, quote-unquote, typical for early followers of Jesus. They preach in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, hope for eternity, forgiveness of sins, and then they find themselves beaten him before a council. Because the council sees power slipping through their hands. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes that came upon him. They seized him. They brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. And you just imagine them pointing at the temple. The place where God dwelt. Where the presence of God was appreciated, enjoyed, and engaged by the Israelite people. And the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Um, In some ways, they're right. 
gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, at this point, I don't know about you, but if it's me and I see that his face turns to a face of an angel, I'll go, what, what was he saying again? And we just have him talk again. I mean, your face isn't glowing. How about we have him talk? But that's not what they do. Story continues. And the high priest said, are these things so? Is what they said, Stephen, is that, is that true? And remember, the accusation about him is, is twofold. The accusation against him is, one, you don't appreciate the temple, and two, you're redefining the law of Moses. Now, now here's what Stephen doesn't say. What Stephen doesn't say is, all right, truth number one, let me tell it to you, and I'm going to teach it to you. Point one, boom, boom, boom. Point two, boom, boom, boom. What, what Stephen says is, that's an interesting accusation, let me tell you a story. In fact, what he says is, that's an interesting accusation, let me tell you your history. Because ruling council, if you knew your history well, if you knew the story well, if your feet were grounded in that story, we'd be having a different conversation here. And so he answers these accusations. The first one we're going to look at. The first one. Stephen, are you against this holy place, this temple? And he makes in no uncertain terms an argument that says God has never been confined to a sacred space. That God is far bigger than that far grander. And in fact, I think you would push back on the Sanhedrin, on these ruling councils and say, if you understood your own story, you would understand that God is far bigger than just being present in one place or a certain place, but that he's present everywhere. Look at the way that he makes this point. Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me, verse two. The God of glory, what's that word? Appeared. God showed up. To our father Abraham, quick time out, big uh-oh for people that wanted to say that the temple was the only place that God showed up because this is centuries before the temple was ever built. And he, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and he said to him, go out from your land, from among your kindred, your family, and go into the land that I will show you. Point one, he says God showed up to Abraham. He showed up in Mesopotamia, in the middle of nowhere, gave him strength to leave. He says, well, if that's not enough, let's continue your story that you should be grounded in. And the patriarch's jealous of Joseph. So he's going through history. And he says, all right, let's, let's move on from Abraham. Let's move down a few generations. Let's get to Joseph, sold in him into Egypt, slavery in Egypt. But God was, what are those words? With him. Well, no temple, but God's present. Hmm. And God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. So God comes to him not in a temple, but actually in, in a prison, in a cell. His next sort of portion as he transitions into next phases in history. He's making the same point. He's ringing this bell for them to hear. And he moves down into Moses, 
one of their patriarchs, one of the main figures of the Hebrew faith. And he says, now 40 years had passed and an angel appeared to him and the hymn here is Moses in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, in the flame of fire in a bush, jumped down to 34. I have surely seen the affliction of my people, God says, who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them. I have come down. Where? Well, into the middle of nowhere. Into the desert, not into the temple. And I have delivered them. And now come, and I will send you out of Egypt. And finally, he quotes from the prophets. He says this, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. The prophet says, Heaven is my throne. This is God speaking. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what play, What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? It's a rhetorical question that deserves a resounding no. We can't build you anything that would be better than what you've already built. Did not my hand make all these things? Yes. Yes, it did. His thesis is this, throughout all time, God has been a pilgrim God. God has been a God throughout all time that meets people exactly where they're at. Not simply in, in a temple or in a tabernacle, but he's a God that shows up in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of a jail cell. And even when we build him, great temples, churches, whatever. He's still a God that says, you can't confine me there. And you see, what Stephen does is he stands in this grand epic that God is telling from the beginning of history until now is he receives this presence from God wherever he's at that leads to a power in the way that he engages with the people around him. See, by implication, what we can learn from this passage is that God does not only show up when things are great, when we feel like we're being quote-unquote blessed, but God shows up at our darkest times, in times where we need him most, his voice is heard. In the times where we need his presence most, he shows up, he delivers, he loves, he sustains, he walks with It's this story that allows Stephen to stand in the midst of people who are starting to gather rocks to drag him outside of town and to throw at him because he's convinced that regardless of whether I'm in the temple or in the desert, whether I'm in the tabernacle or in a jail, if I'm in a church building or if I'm on the worst day of my life, God is with me. And it's a story he stands in. He's convinced of it. In fact, it was part of the way of Jesus. It was part of what the early followers of Jesus, they hooked and latched onto because Jesus himself told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That when my presence indwells you through the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit, you will be a people lit up with power. I wonder if the stories we tell ourselves Edge out the reality that in the darkest seasons of life, God is still present and still there and still loves us. 
confession. They do for me. They do for me. Part of the story that plays in my head is, is the, if, if God, if you're good and if you're powerful, well, then why? And so I trade this story, this beautiful epic that God has been telling throughout all of history by where he comes to people in their brokenness and in their need and in their hopelessness and he meets them there. And the story I start to play in my, my head is, God, I'm doing a memorial for a 33-year-old friend of mine who has three kids. Where are, where are you in that, God? And God, I just had a conversation with a friend on the phone and breast cancer's back again, second time. And God, where are you in that? And if I'm not grounded in the grander story that God is telling in his story, in history, then I have a tendency to start walking down a road that in no way, shape, or form did God design me to go walk through. He wants me to walk the road of trials with the realization that there's nothing that can separate me from his love. Nothing. So Dallas Willard sort of tongue-in-cheek says this in one of um, this great sort of article with him. He says, the world is a perfectly safe place for you to be regardless of what happens to you. Why? Because he's grounded in this bigger story. He's grounded in what the psalmist says, I'll fear no evil because you're gonna solve every problem that I ever encounter. No. Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we will all walk it one day, I will fear no evil for you, my God, are with me. And so Stephen's response can be summarized. It's never been about God meeting people in a specific place. It's been about a person. And he meets us wherever we're at. Some of us have fallen asleep to that reality. Can I invite you? Wake up. Wake up to the beautiful epic that God has been telling throughout all of history. The earth is his footstool. Everything in it is his. His glory, Isaiah says, fills the whole earth. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, his presence dwells in you. It's your hope of glory, regardless of what seasons of life you're encountering. So second, Second, he says, all right, so, so let's talk, let's not talk about the temple, but let's talk about the presence that is everywhere, regardless of the temple. The second accusation that was brought against Stephen that he answers by inviting them back into the story was that he didn't value the law of Moses in the way that he quote unquote should. His answer to this question is a little bit more nuanced, so follow his argument a little bit. But what he's going to do is he's going to say, I'm okay with the law, but instead of talking about the law, let's push back to what preceded the law and is something that the law falls under but does not supersede. And it's this word, promise. Listen to the way he does this. It's really brilliant. It says, and then he, and the he here is Abraham, we're picking up that same story, went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living, he says to the people that, who are standing there. So he goes, hey, you want to know how this story, this account is true? 
well, you have a house near Jerusalem. That's how. Okay. Verse five. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, nor even a foot's length, but promised, but promised, but promised to give it to him as possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no children. And God spoke to this effect. And God made it so. He goes on to pick up this same argument in verse 17 of Acts chapter 7. He says, but at the time of the promise, the time of the promise, This is God coming to Abraham. A little bit of context. This is God coming to Abraham and telling him a number of things. One of which is the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham would be blessed and that he would be a blessing to all the nations who are around him. We find out in the book of Galatians that that blessing culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Promise. The other promise, you'll be the father of many nations. So, Sing it with me. Father Abraham had many, just kidding, but we sing it, don't we? Right arm, right? Let's all praise the Lord. And here's what Stephen does in brilliant fashion. He says, you're concerned about talking about the law, but why don't we talk about something that came 400 years before the law? Why don't we talk about a, a different way that God operated with his people that the law did not supersede and it did not knock out. When he goes back to promise, his declaration is God is still interacting with people on the basis of promise. So here's what we find as we stand in this glorious, beautiful, epic story of God. We find strength to encounter life's trials because of the promises that God delivers that lead to our provision. The word promise literally means to declare over. See, promise is a declaration, it's not a deal. Promise is not, was not God coming to Abraham and saying, hey, Abraham, if, if you're a good boy and you go to church and you worship me rightly, well, then I'm going to open Sarah's womb and you're going to have kids. You do your part, I'll do mine. Promise was declaration. It was God saying, regardless, Abraham, of if you do your part and if you're faithful to me every single day of your life. Hey, Abraham, even if you pretend your wife is your sister and give her to the king in order to preserve yourself, hypothetically. Even if you do that, Abraham, I'm still gonna be good because this is a declaration, it's not a deal. It's me saying I'm gonna do something and it's me saying I'm gonna show up. And so what Peter or Stephen points back to is, hey, you're standing in the wrong story. You're standing in the story of law, of obedience and command. When God is inviting you, stand in the story of promise. Stand in the story of grace. Stand in the story of mercy. Stand in the story of Jesus. Because what scripture says is that every single promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. Here's a quick, just by way of summary. Here's a 
some way to give some context to this discussion because promise preceded law and throughout scripture in some ways it it rubs against it it contrasts it in a way you can read galatians chapter 3 and 4 beautiful exposition of that hebrews 6 in addition but let's just draw out some of the truth that i think stephen might have us sink our feet into as we live in this epic story of god in the promises of God, God says, I will, I will, I will. The law, God says, thou shalt and thou shalt not. The promise is based on God's plan, God's initiative, and God's grace. The law is, work, is based on man's work, man's duty, and man's responsibility. The promise had only to be believed. The law had to be obeyed. The promise was based on grace and faith. The law based on commandments and works. Did you know, look up at me for just a second. Look up at me for just a second. In Galatians chapter four, verse 28, it says that you too are children of promise. So Stephen says, let's not settle for a smaller story, but let's stand in a beautiful reality that is not based on my achievement and it's not based on my work and it's not based on my obedience and God is not cutting us a deal, but through Jesus, he's making a declaration. I'm redeeming and restoring all things, he says, and by faith, you step into that promise. And like I said before, all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. That might be an okay place for you to say amen, amen. So let me ask you, what what promises do you need to cling to this morning? Has the narrative that plays in the background of your mind, has it taken you off course from the reality that Jesus says to you and to me, when you stand in my story, my promise is my provision. I'm providing you with salvation. You stand in it because of the blood of Jesus. I'm providing you with the Holy Spirit. He dwells inside of you. And the scriptures are gonna say that's based on promise too, not because you're awesome and not because you nailed it, but because God is gracious and good to you. You have it this morning if you're a follower of Christ. The regardless, the question is, do we stand in it? Do we know it? Does it change the way that we live? Well, in conclusion, we have Stephen who tells this great story, narrative, history of Israel. If you want to study the history of the Israelite people, Acts chapter 7 is a great place to start. But he gets himself in trouble in verse 51 where he um, says to the rulers and the authorities, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you always resist the spirit. That kind of thing will get you killed. Verse 54 Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. It was sort of a term that they used for horses. It was like a angry type face. We can only assume. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Can you you imagine this? I mean, they're, they're starting to look for rocks and he looks up into heaven. 
It says he sees Jesus, the right hand of the Father. And he said, behold, as if it wasn't enough to call them stiff-necked people who resist the Holy Spirit. Now he's going to describe to them what he sees, and this is the final nail in the maybe not so proverbial coffin. And he said, behold, I see heavens opened up, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a, lar- with a loud voice and stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll start to talk about him in a few weeks. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling onto his knees, he called out, cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. I'm horribly convicted by this passage. Because I can recount my week, some things that didn't go exactly the way that I wanted them to go, and my prayer was not, Lord, forgive them. My prayer was, Lord, they got something coming to them, and if you could deliver that, that'd be good. <laughs> and I'm convicted because Stephen, here's, here's, what, here's what Stephen did. He became a learner, an apprentice, a disciple under the way of Jesus. And not in a way where he said, hey, I think that's a great idea, Jesus, but in a way where he built his life around the words and, and invitations that Jesus gave. To be the type of people who, Pray for those who persecute them even when they are persecuting them. To love his enemies as he does brilliantly and well. And you see what happens when you're grounded in this epic narrative story of God that he's been telling throughout all of history that's grounded in his presence and his promises is it starts to reshape the way that you see the world around you. And so Stephen stands in this story and these promises and this presence and it gives them a perspective that leads to him being the type of guy that perseveres not when life is going great but when life presses in and when life is difficult and when life is hard. And friends, in many ways, will you just look up at me for just a second? In many ways, this perspective begins and ends with seeing Jesus. It's what Stephen does. Even as he's dying, he sees him, Lord of lords, Lamb of God, slain, standing at the right hand of the Father, and he sees him in his beauty, and he sees him in his power, and he sees him, don't miss it, in his welcome, saying, Stephen, welcome home. Welcome home. And so Stephen says, I can, I can go outside of the city and I can take rocks until they take my life, but I can only do it because I know my father welcomes me. And you see, when our feet are grounded in that same story, it has that same effect on us. It's why the scripture is going to continually point us to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. He's the author, the perfecter of your faith. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this world. Because when you see Jesus, it frees you to live in this world in a way that will allow you to persevere through difficult times. See, Stephen is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to walk with God when times are tough. He serves well. And he suffers well. Those are two things we don't want to do well. But he's filled with the spirit. He's grounded in the story. And so he says, yeah. 
Because of my perspective and my eternal view, Jesus, I will walk with you. I'll bless and not curse. I'll trust and not doubt. I'll walk with you without getting tired. And when I do, I know you're enough. Christ is enough for me. I think might have been Stephen's song. So friend, I want to invite you. In all the different stories that play, in our hearts and in our minds, one of the gifts that you have in scripture is that Jesus invites us back into the story of God. As often as you go to it, you ground yourself in this beautiful, epic narrative by which God says to you, welcome in and welcome home. My prayer is that this story might shape our community, that we start, might start to be more and more the people of God who see the kingdom of God more and more displayed in our midst because we're people of the story, the truth that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that God is at work, has been at work, and will be at work, and that you, friend, are part of that work. Would you pray with me? Father, I I, want to just create some space for my friends in this room right now to engage with you. Lord, would you draw to the surface of our soul ways that we maybe have forgotten who you are, the way that you're working, have been working, will be working throughout all of history and into all of eternity. God, remind us this morning that you are a God who's present not because we're in church, but because we live in a God-bathed world. In whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, Jesus, would you speak into it? Not only that you're here, but that you're a God of promise, that you declare things over us that by faith we have the beautiful invitation to step into, like the reality that because of the blood of Christ, you've conquered sin, you've conquered death, you invited us to walk with you. No condemnation, only freedom and only hope. And Lord, my my prayer, my ask for me and for my friends is that we might see Jesus this morning. Because I'm convinced that seeing him changes everything. So Lord, for those who are maybe on the outskirts of faith today, who are here and not sure what story they want to invest their life into, not sure if they believe this history of your church. I pray that by your spirit, you might extend to them your hand of grace and woo them home. That what Jesus has done, Lord, they put their faith and hope in that. Father, thank you. Thank you for inviting us to be a part 
the story that you're telling. May we live in it well. May our feet be firmly grounded in it. Your presence, your promise. Redefining our perspective, please. It's in the holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.